0: good morning we are reading this morning from Romans 7 starting in verse 13 and then going to chapter 8 verse 11 so if you want to turn with me or follow along in verse 5 oh verse 5 sorry start verse 7 verse 5 For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin seized an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin— might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might, be sin, might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the ver- I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for in the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is God's word.
1: Good morning. In the earlier chapters of Romans, we learned that keeping the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, cannot bring justification. That, that is the initiation, that is the work of God alone to make people, uh, people belong to Him, and no one comes to belong to God because of what they do. That is, no one is converted by their own volition or action. And so, Paul explained at length that just because they were being circumcised and saying, yeah, I'm, a, I'm an Israelite, didn't actually make them one, didn't actually justify them. And now, and particularly the beginning in Romans chapter 6, Paul has turned to the more central question of Romans, can the law then bring sanctification? That is, can what was received by faith and begun by the Spirit, can, can that then be completed by works of the law? So it, it was actually a more commonly understood thing, in, when Paul's writing this letter to the Romans, it's more commonly understood that people do not become believers by keeping the law. But what Paul's addressing more so, what's more central to the theme of Romans, is having become Christians by faith through grace in Jesus, or by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, having become believers through the Spirit, can they now complete the work that God is doing them by the law? Can what was received by faith and begun by the Spirit be completed by works of the law? And Paul's Answer is a resounding no. And to drive this point home, then in chapter seven, Paul reminds his judius judius Jewish audience, excuse me, reminds the Jewish audience of the frustration and hopelessness that he has had experienced when he was under the law. Not only was the law completely incapable of justifying anyone, it was also incapable of sanctifying anyone. It could not prevent anyone from sinning, just as the history of Israel had proven. The law was praiseworthy. It is holy, righteous, and good, chapter 7, verse 12 But the effect of the law upon rebellious hearts is that it only served to produce even more sinfulness. The law, then, was instrumental for sin, even though it is not itself blameworthy, since the law is inherently good. And so, we begin verse 13, "'Did that which is good, then, bring death to me?' By no means." It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And so the law had this purpose. It pointed out sin. It said, that's sin. That there that you're doing, that there that you desire, what you want to do in that circumstance, that's sin. Don't do that. But it also pointed out sin by causing sin to increase, so that even as people were told, don't covet, it caused their rebellious hearts to choose then to covet all the more. And so the law actually shows sin for what it is. Sin became sinful beyond measure through the commandment. And so the law is good. It is God's good law. But there is another law at work the law of sin and death. The good law reveals God's righteous standard in order to show sin for what it is, but sin utilized the law of commandments to become even more sinful, sinful beyond measure. So the law is good, but those under the law are increasingly slaves to sin. I'm going to read a bigger portion here again. Uh, This is, uh, I believe, the third uh, sermon, and we will do, do one more in this section. But I just want to point out uh, here chapter 7, verse 14 to 24, and just read that again. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, Paul has been speaking in past tense of what being under the law was like. And now he switches to the present tense, which has sparked some serious debate through over 1,500 years of church history. Some of you more scholastic here will inevitably be somewhat unsatisfied with the sermon this morning, Because to even do a proper introduction for this ongoing debate would take a lengthy seminary lecture, which I'd be happy to give. But no matter what we teach here, it will put me on the other side from a long list of godly men and women who are all a lot more intelligent than I am. And so we're going to look at this. But I'm not going to be able to do a really good job of giving both sides and and then telling, you know, giving this to you. I'm going to preach this passage to you based on uh, what I am confident that this means. And if you want to debate me, I love that. That's a fun hobby for me. And we can do that later. So nobody stand up in the middle of this and be like, no, that's wrong. Because I know some people are going to think this is wrong. Most if not all of the early church fathers, believed that Paul was continuing, as he clearly was in verses 7 to 13, to speak from the perspective of one under the law, not describing his own current struggles as a Christian. And the difference here, I think, became clear that this was especially since quite different than with English or Latin, the present tense in Greek does not indicate that present time is involved. So when, we, when Paul says, I don't do what I want, in English we think that means Paul's talking about his situation now. In Greek it does not necessarily and actually almost never means that. And so I'll explore that a little bit. But as far as the early church fathers were concerned... Becoming a Christian would deliver a person from the kind of dilemma that the Apostle is outlining here. Now, a more recent view, just a little over 1,500 years old, so you know, pretty new, proposes that Paul's shift to the present tense in this section suggests that Paul is transitioning from a discussion of his pre-Christian experience to his present experience. And many have found this interpretation to be cathartic because who hasn't experienced this kind of wrestling with sin and the feeling like we are sometimes losing the battle? And so when we struggle with sin and we see, oh man, how can God even be pleased with me? I'm such a terrible sinner. And then we read Paul saying how terrible of a sinner he is that he can't even do what's right, but he always sins and has no no ability to stop sinning. Then we're like, okay, I guess I'm doing pretty good. Seems like I'm doing well then in comparison to Paul. I am actually quite a strong Christian compared to Paul who couldn't do anything right and was unable to stop sinning. And so it, it feels good. It actually feels like a good interpretation to me. Now, as I said, I can't fairly engage in a debate here. Uh, as, as someone giving a monologue, you always get to win the argument. So what I ho- hope to show this morning is that as Christians, we far too often allow ourselves to submit once again to sin so that we easily fit into a description here which simply does not fit the Christian life as Paul has already described it in chapter 6 and as he will continue to describe it in contrast in chapter 8. So this isn't really going to be much of a sermon this morning. What we're going to do is we're going to look at chapter 7, we're going to compare it to chapter 6, And then we're going to compare it to chapter 8, and I believe that it will be worthwhile to us, because if we think that the Christian life is being slave to sin, it will radically change the way that we live. But if we know that the Christian life is being freed from slavery to sin, that we are capable, that we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ, that will also drastically change the way we live our lives. As I said, this is part two or three of the the sermon series on chapter seven. We're going to have one more, and so I I encourage you to to listen to all or read all together to get a more full orb view here. Paul makes an extremely emphatic point in Romans chapter six, and I'm going to fly through Scripture. I'd like, if you're able, to have your Bible open to Romans chapter six. We're going to put it on the screen, but you will just be able to look down, and we're going to go through Romans chapter 6. Verse 2 says that if we are believers, we died to sin. Verse 4, we were baptized into Christ's death in order to live a new life. Verse 6, our old self was crucified with Christ so that the body of sin was brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, we have been set free from sin. Verse 8, we have died with Christ so that we can live alongside Him. Verse 11, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Verse 12, we are not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. Can you imagine Paul telling us, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, and then telling us just a few paragraphs later, I am unable to stop sin from reigning in my mortal body. Sin is just constantly doing whatever it wants in my life. We are not to present our body parts, verse 13, as instruments for unrighteousness, but to God as instruments for righteousness. Verse 14 tells us that sin has no dominion over us if we are in Christ. Verse 17, if we were once slaves to sin, we have now in Christ become obedient from the heart. Verse 18, having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. And where we once presented our bodies as slaves to wickedness, verse 19, we now present our bodies as slaves to righteousness. Righteousness. We were slaves of sin, verse 20. But now, verse 22, we have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. There is no way around concluding from Romans 6 that Christians have had a dramatic break from their old slavery to sin. Paul could not have been more emphatic about it. The point could not be clearer. Those who are in Christ have died to sin and have been set free from sin. For Paul to make this emphatic claim about Christians over and over again and then claim that his own current experience as a Christian involved being sold under sin, verse 14, and unable to do what he wanted, verse 15, would be utterly contradictory. Not only would this sabotage the argument he has just made in chapter 6, but it would completely undermine the entire argument of Romans by affirming his opponent's claim that his gospel left Gentiles bound to sin rather than producing righteous lives. See, this is the whole point of Romans. They're concerned that he's preaching a law-free gospel. And won't that law-free gospel just result in people calling themselves Christians and then sinning all over the place? And Paul says, no. This gospel of grace is actually the only means for sanctification. It is only by faith that we will be transformed into obedient Christians. It is only by faith that we will have genuine obedience from the heart. And so for Paul then to say... Oh yeah, well, my gospel ultimately leaves me a slave to sin. I'm sold under sin. I'm unable to do what is good that I want to do. This would totally undermine everything that he is writing about in Romans. If we understand the main themes of Romans, it is very difficult to see Paul speaking of the Christian life at the end of chapter 7. Instead of speaking of his own Life Now, Paul uses present tense Greek verbs to depict vividly the ongoing struggle of the Jewish person still living under the law. He wants to show his Jewish opponents that life under the law of Moses did not produce sanctification but was characterized by ongoing slavery to sin. And as I looked into this and and who was on the different sides of this argument, the more someone was familiar with Greek, the less likely they were to think that Paul was speaking about a present activity in his life. Because it's a different language, and the present tense doesn't have the same implications as it does in English or Latin. Now, through the the last half of chapter 7 and into the beginning of chapter 8, Paul continues the comparison he began in chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, contrasting the former life under the law with the new way of life in the Spirit. So, so listen to this contrast, Verse, chapter 7, verses 5 to 6. For while we were still living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The former state of being under the law is then expounded in chapter 7, verses 7 to 25, in drastic and direct contrast with the new life of the Spirit described again in chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. And so Romans 7, 14 says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, when Paul says something like, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin, we know from chapter 6, that he cannot be talking about life as a Christian. It is totally and in all other ways inconceivable that he would refer to his Christian experience as sold under sin with all of the times that he has said Christians are no longer slaves to sin. To be sold is slave language. This is the language of bondage, of having sin as your master. He continues, verse 15 and 16, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. And so it tells us, what does it mean to be sold under sin? To be sold under sin is to live a life where you do what you don't want to do. A life of doing the very things you hate. It is a life of being shocked by your own actions, unable to fully comprehend the depth of sin within us. And this is exactly what Paul was referring to when he said that we were once slaves of sin in chapter 6, verse 17. Slavery to sin is so insidious because it cannot be excised from the person. You can't have a surgery, not even a spiritual surgery, and have your slavery to sin removed from you. not, Not even a lobotomy would pull it off. You know, you can't have this removed from you. It is intrinsic to who you are as a person. That is why one must die to the old self in order to be free from slavery to sin. It is a slavery of the will so that while Paul speaks of being under the law as being unable to do what he wants and of practicing what he hates, he still ends up doing what he ultimately wants to do. This isn't Paul denying responsibility by saying there's this foreign power and, and it, I don't do anything that I want to do. He, he confesses impotence, He's unable to battle against the sinful desires. The slave to sin still does evil intentionally and voluntarily. The the point here that Paul's making is that God's good law is exonerated, and it is shown that the responsibility for evil rests on indwelling sin. It wasn't the law that caused sin, even though the law was used by sin, to increase sin. And again, it's obvious if we read this carefully that Paul speaks as one who recognizes the goodness of the Old Testament law, in verse 14, that it is spiritual, and verse 16, that it is something good and worthy of his obedience. It is also obvious that he speaks as someone who attempts to keep the law and as one who is under the law and is unable to succeed in obeying it. So these are all status of someone who is not a convert to Christianity. Someone who uh, attempts to keep the law, who is under the law, but is unable to succeed in keeping the law. That is exactly what Paul has described those who are not yet converted to Christianity. So verse 17 continues... but sin that dwells in me. So we know that Paul is talking from the perspective of one who has nothing good dwelling in him and has sin dwelling in him. The law promised life and blessing to those who kept it. So the desire to keep the law was only natural for those who knew it. Can you imagine you have two signs up over two pathways? One says life and blessing and joy and eternal life, and the other says cursing and damnation and death. Which one do you want to walk under? Which path would you like to? To choose. All those who knew the law of God, who desired to keep it, this was only natural. Desiring to keep God's law appropriately describes the experience of pious Jews like Paul before his conversion. Now, you might think I'm just saying that. Consider the personal recount of his former life in Galatians 1:13 to 14. He says, "...for you have heard of my former life in Judaism." How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul's point is that those under the law desire to keep it. Knowing it was good and knowing its value, but they did not have the ability to carry it out. And the fact that they desire to keep the law but fail shows that another law is at work within them. Another law. So they have the law of God with their mind they desire to keep. It leads to life. It leads to blessing. We desire to keep it. And yet there's another law at work corrupting their desires, verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells within me. And so, verse 21, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. The two laws are at work in those under the law. And neither is the law of the spirit of life, Romans 8-2, which would set them free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You see this? There's two laws at work in this person talking in Romans seven twenty one to 23. There is the law of Moses, which they desire to keep because it leads to life and blessing for those who keep it. And there's another law that when they want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. And so they're taken captive to the law of sin, the opposite of what is said in Romans 8, right? Romans 8 says it, those who are under the law of the Spirit of life have been set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This person is under the law of Moses, and is, that law has been corrupted in them by the law of sin and death, and they are now slaves to sin. And though the mind delights in the law of God, There is another power at work, another law waging war, and so the desire to do God's will is countered by an even stronger desire. So they have the desire of the mind to do what leads to life. Have you not experienced this in your life, even pre-conversion? I know that I should do smart things because that will lead to a good outcome, but then I do all the stupid things that I decided not to do because... I don't know why, it's just the law, that's the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death overrides that desire to do what is right that even unbelievers have because we all want things to work out well for us, right? And so can you imagine being a Jew, brought up knowing the good law of God, knowing that it leads to life and blessing? Of course, in your mind, in your inner being, which is synonymous, you want to keep that law, but there's another law waging war, the the law that wins and counters bringing a new and different desire. Again, to delight in the law of God is extremely common vocabulary in Judaism. So some have said, well, no one who uh, delights in the law of God could be an unchristian person. Only someone who's genuinely saved would delight in the law of God. But except for the fact that in Judaism, this is very common language. In fact, part of the regular liturgy of the synagogue through the Psalms. And yet David who most commonly wrote of this sentiment, who most commonly wrote of his delight in the law of God, was far from an example of someone who was dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He delighted in the law of God in his mind, and yet the desires of the flesh are what characterized his actions as a coveter, thief, adulterer, and murderer. And this is where debate on this passage has often been poorly framed because Paul is not speaking here as an unregenerate unbeliever, but as a pious Jew under the old covenant. So it's not, here's the people who hate God and here's the people who love God, but he's talking about his experience as a pious Jew under the law. He's not talking about someone who, who just hates the law and doesn't want to do anything right. He's talking about those who lived under the law. Even those who loved God and delighted in His law in the Old Testament failed to keep it. So it wasn't just those people who, who rejected God and rebelled against Him, but it was also wonderful people of God, like David, who failed to keep His law. The, those who were under the law even those who loved God, even those who delighted in the law of God, even those who with their mind wanted to keep the law, every single one of them failed to keep God's law. And so they longed for what God promised in the new covenant. As several places elsewhere, Ezekiel 36 has been one of our go-to. Ezekiel 36, 26-27, God promises, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. This is what God-fearing Jewish people and proselytes who had joined the the Jewish religion, the the worshipped Yahweh, this is what they yearned for under the Old Covenant. They yearned for a day which their, their failure to keep the law would be resolved by God giving His people a new heart and by putting His Spirit within them, causing them to walk in His statutes and to keep His rules. So thus, Paul is not contrasting those who hate God with those who love Him, but the effects of living under the law with living under grace. He is writing to believers who are questioning whether his law-free gospel leads to further sin, and his response is to contrast the reality of living under the law with living under the new covenant with a new heart and according to the Spirit. Under the law, the result is this, Romans 7, 24-25, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The the cry, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, is the cry of those under the law. Here depicted by Paul, a Jew who was once under the law but is is so no longer. To be wretched is the opposite of to be blessed. It means to be miserable. It means to be in mental or emotional turmoil. If you look through the Old Testament for the use of this very word, it is always in contrast with being blessed. Those under the law are not blessed. They are wretched because they are slaves to sin, a slavery from which they are unable to rescue themselves. But there is hope for those under the law. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is not utterly hopeless. The law shows us our desperate need for the Savior. Only those who reject the promised Savior are indeed hopeless. But Paul's inviting them to come and trust themselves to the Savior rather than to the law. But under the law... Paul was forced to admit that though he served the law of God with his mind, the law of sin and death was at work within his flesh. Although he wanted to serve and honor God, he was still a slave to sin. Now, I want to take a closer look at Romans 8 1 to 17 again in the future, but for now, I want to take a look at how the earlier verses in chapter 8 directly contrast what we've been looking at in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 25. Under the law, sin brought condemnation to those who failed to keep it because they were fated to die. The law says that those who failed to keep the law will die. Romans seven ten to 11 says, the very commandment that promised life Proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. But for those who have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that they may belong to another, a different story altogether. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see the drastic difference One is receiving death through the law, rightly, deserving death. They have failed to keep it. For the other, there is no condemnation because they are in Christ Jesus, having died to sin and died to the law. Another contrast is that those under the law... For those under the law, sorry, there is another more powerful law which always in the end wins out, the law of sin and death. And so Romans 7, 21 to 23 says that I find it to be a law that when I want to do what's right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in in my members again for those who have been freed from the law it is a drastically different situation romans 8 2 to 3 for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in christ jesus from the law of sin and death see the direct contrasts for what god has done for god has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God has done what the law could not do. The law could not free us from the law of sin and death, but God has done that through the gospel. We no longer walk in captivity to the law of sin and death. Romans 7.23 also speaks of sin dwelling in those under the law. Uh, along with Romans 7.17-18, 7, to 18, it says, So it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me it, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So it's said three times in different ways sin dwells within me, nothing good dwells within me, sin dwells within me. Nothing good dwells in the flesh of those under the law, only sin. There is nothing in them that gives them the ability to carry out the law's demands. In contrast, the Spirit of God dwells in those who belong to Christ. Romans 8, 8-9 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Very much in agreement with what chapter 7 has said. Those are in the flesh can't please God, just as Paul's talking about being under the law. You, however, verse 9, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. God, through Paul, is wanting us to see that there are two types of people, those who have sin living and reigning within them, and those who have the Holy Spirit living and reigning within them. Someone who has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them would not say, I have nothing good dwelling within me. That is the opposite, right? In the gospel, an entirely new kind of human is being created, a born-again human who is indwelt by the very presence of God, the Holy Spirit. And so the dominant chord of New Testament instruction is to live in victory over sin by the power of this indwelling Spirit, something that Old Testament believers did not have. They lo- looked forward to, longed for the covenant that would give them a new heart that would, so they could have obedience from the heart. They longed for and looked forward to a new covenant where they would be indwelt by God's own Spirit who would cause them to obey Him. In the New Testament, we're constantly commanded to be who we are in Christ. To live in victory over sin by the power of the Spirit with the expectation that every believer will experience substantial, significant, and observable victory over sin, even while we continue to struggle and knowing that perfection is not attained in this life. So which person do we see ourselves as? Because we can't see ourselves as both, you see. Do we see ourselves, is that, is that our experience? The interpretation that Paul is still someone who's a slave to sin, who's still someone who has is helpless when it comes to doing what's right, and who's helpless to stop doing what's wrong, if that is um something that, that we look at and are like, that's great, that's, that's who I am, that's good, I'm doing okay. If that's what we see as enticing to us, if that interpretation seems like that, that something that fits with me, I need to ask myself, why is that the case? It may be that we do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, giving us victory over sin. But it also may be that we have not believed correctly, that we have not seen ourselves as dead to sin and alive to Christ. It may be that we have not taken hold of that which is ours in Christ Jesus. It may be that we have belittled the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And so, as we consider these passages, seeing which are we? Are we a slave to sin? or Are we freed from slavery to sin? Although we go back to it like a dog returning to its vomit, but when we do, we hate it. When we go back to it, we have the power to stop. Not, Not in ourselves, not in my flesh, but in Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. So Galatians five sixteen to eighteen commands us, and we're uh, God willing going to come back to chapter eight now and, and see what this means for our lives and the instruction that Paul gives. Galatians five sixteen to eighteen says, "But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other." to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would work in us mightily. First of all, to give us right interpretation of your word. May we know what it is that your Spirit is speaking to the church. As your sheep, if we are your sheep, you tell us that we know your voice. And so, Lord, may we recognize the voice of Christ in His Word, applied to us by His Spirit. And Holy Spirit, I pray then you would apply this Word to our lives. For though we are not former Jews who are struggling with whether we ought to walk according to the Mosaic law, we still find ourselves walking as those under the law, not those freed from it. We still find ourselves struggling in such a way that we resonate with Paul talking about what it's like to live under the law more so than identifying with Paul talking about what it's like to live life in the Spirit. And God, if this is because we lack the Spirit, I pray that deep conviction would come upon us, that we would cry out to you for help. I pray that the law would do its work, showing us how truly sinful we are so that we cry out wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of sin? And Lord, if the Holy Spirit is at work in us and we just have not walked with the Spirit, uh, we have desi- desire—or sorry gratified instead the desires of the flesh and not walked according to the desires of the Spirit, God, I pray that you would bring conviction there as well, that we would repent And we would walk in the victory that you have already granted us. We would be who we are in Christ Jesus. And doing so, walking in obedience from the heart, being given our marching orders, the power and even the desire by the Holy Spirit to live in obedience to you, we would give you alone glory. Not like those who are under the law who can take credit for doing this or that good thing. But as those in Christ under grace, we would give you all the glory even as you sanctify us. That as we grow in our obedience and and our desire for obedience, we would not become those who are proud, uptight religious people. But we would become more and more humble more and more filled with joy, more excited to share this great news that was better than we ever imagined. In Jesus' name I pray for your glory. Amen.
2: We house of Zion we will sing with our hearts restored he's done great things we will sing together we will feast and weep no more we will not be burned Bye.